Welcome. You have entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simron. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Empower yourself. Broaden your mind. Open your heart and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simron. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is hard to believe that we are flying through January 2020. And even in the midst of these first three weeks, there are so many things that are on the news and facing us uh, as we face the world. And so it's important that we understand how these different events are impacting us and not turn a blind eye or numb ourselves out to try to get away from what's going on. Today's show is extremely important because we're talking about trauma. We're talking about wounds and how to move them into wisdom. We are speaking about healing intergenerational trauma. And my guest today is an expert on this and has done thorough research in regard to Jewish trauma. And although we will be talking about that, what she has written about and what she is speaking about affects all of us, especially in these days and times when there are so many events that affect us on so many levels. Today, an increasing number of people are saying no to the undertow of their life's tragedies. They are survivors of trauma who are not willing to be delimited by the events of their past, who refuse to consent to a post-trauma diagnosis, and who want to go beyond an identity of victimhood. Forever changed by their tragedies, they're not looking to return to their old lives They wish to move forward, to live in the world free of constraints, of trauma's consequences. The power of the unconscious is mighty and requires of us immense vigilance if we are to steer our own destiny. Jews and all people who have suffered the traumatic effects of degradation and displacement, racial oppression and violent persecution, simply for being themselves, must wrestle with their legacies. The past can become cause for fatalism, hypervigilance, and a sense of radical unsafety in the world. But if we pay attention and do the hard work of facing what has happened, more mourning our losses and loosening the grip of automatic behaviors that follow a traumatic history, we can change our fate. Our injuries can ignite a passion for a new kind of identity, a new kind of life, one that courageously faces the humiliation of our own suffering and places it within the larger context of the world's plight. These powerful words are from Rabbi Tirsa Firestone's book, Wounds into Wisdom, Healing Intergenerational Jewish Trauma. Author Tirsa Firestone is a psychotherapist and founding rabbi of the congregation Nevi Kodesh in Boulder, Colorado, having studied and counseled hundreds of Jewish families and individuals for over 30 years Tirsa Firestone brings to life her case studies and interviews with real people who have surmounted their tragedies, trauma legacies, Firestone posits, transfer from generation to generations, and wounds into wisdom, offers encouragement and solutions to stop the negative effects of our historical traumas from continuing on to future generations. Welcome, Tirsa, to 1111 Talk Radio. Thank you, Simran. So good to be here with you. I'm really excited to have this conversation, um, partially because the book touched me so deeply as I have been walking through uh, a a series of traumatic events for the last seven years. And what I read in this book so resonated with me in terms of um, many of the steps that are required to move beyond it. And when I look at what we're having to face in the world today, although it looks like today's issues and, and what we're fighting from my own spiritual perspective and work, I realize that so much of this does stem from history. It is the continuation of past legacy, past trauma, past patterns and behaviors, and facing it in the way that you are talking about and looking at it in the way that you are talking about is quite powerful. You start off the book by saying that scholars of intergenerational trauma tell us that the silent shrouding family's untold stories paradoxically becomes the strongest form of transmission. And I think we've done that in families, in cultures, in societies, in our world. Talk a little bit about how this is both a, a smaller picture within the family, but also a global picture in terms of how things are unfolding for us on a daily basis, whether it is issues in Israel and Palestine, or whether it is children that are being locked in cages, or whether it is uh, patriarchy and the abuse of women, how all these traumas are things that are 
generational in the long run. Yes, indeed, they are uh, generational. And what we're seeing in the world today is uh, the snowballing effect of of unhealed trauma and unhealed anxieties and fears that have been passed down for for uh, for centuries. But the good news is that we can do something about it. We really can change and integrate our trauma and transform it into wisdom. And it starts at the personal level. It, it starts at the family level. Every family has its own secrets. Every family has its own pains and tragedies that, that get swept under the rug or uh, that, that are undealt with. And, uh, and sometimes the residue of those uh, unresolved issues get passed on to the most sensitive people in the next generation or the next generation. And uh, that's what I found in my own life, that there were things that I was dealing with that, that felt bigger than me. And uh, so we feel that on a personal level, we feel that on a family level, but, but it's, it's happening at um, micro as well as macro. And, and like I said, we, we, are, we do have the capacity to turn and face these things and to heal them. And when we do, it releases so much energy and so much healing uh, and so much capacity uh, for, for goodness. In reading your story and looking at how, number one, you uncovered it after the passing of your father and seeing pictures that you viscerally felt even before seeing them, um, but also how that impacted your brother and your sister and, and the people in your family and their course of life as to what they chose to do religiously to, you know, ultimately what led to some choices that they made that... Um, that affected the entire family by, by their passing. How does yes. someone realize, or how did you realize truly that everything that was going on in you and your family had stemmed from things that had gone past, even though they were silenced and never spoken? <laughs> well, you know, things get pushed under, but as Freud said, uh, there's the return of the repressed. <laughs> so secrets do come out, and they come out, sometimes they come out sideways. But uh, in my family, my mom was a, a, came from a, a Holocaust background. She had escaped on the kinder transport by the skin of her teeth, really, in 1939 from Nazi Germany. And uh, she was on this train, and she and her brother, brothers and sister got out. Uh, but she lost, li- literally scores and scores of uh, first cousins and uncles and aunts. And she never mentioned that at all. Uh, and I didn't find out until and, until much later in my life. But it came out anyway. <laughs> and my father, as you said, was a, a good American boy who was drafted into the U.S. Army during World War II and found himself in the most devastated parts of Germany uh, doing bomb detection. And he found himself in Bergen-Belsen in April 1945 when that death camp was being liberated by the British and he I don't think he was prepared for what he saw there but he did he did shoot a lot of photos and after he died I we never he never spoke about any of this but after he died locked in his metal filing cabinet uh, in the basement we found a stack of pictures that he had taken a photograph that he had taken uh, of these heinous things these unseeable these unseeable things and uh, as I held them in my hands all the dots started to connect like this is why he this is why dad was the way he was and it started to connect the dots this is why mom was the way she was they were really they were trauma survivors but they hadn't dealt with it and that was why we were parented the way we were that was why they were so uh, inflexible and so dogmatic and so uh, anxious and uh, I had to heal myself and so I started to started to study what trauma was about both personally individual trauma as well as collective trauma and I started to understand that these were the remnants the residues of unprocessed trauma and I started to uh, go from there to understand that whole ethnicities whole peoples can can suffer trauma and there are ways to we never, we never overcome completely the tragedies of our lives, but we do 
have the capacity for resilience and we have the capacity to transform uh, the wounds that we've gone through and to glean from them, to harvest deep wisdom and sagacity. And some people have really done that. And so I wanted to know, is it possible? How is it possible to transform the effects of, of our trauma, both our individual trauma and our historical trauma, to come through life's heavy blows with more wisdom, with, with a sense of, of freedom and inner freedom? And it is possible. And that's what my book is all about. I, I follow uh, people all over the world who have gone through horrendous things uh, and really come through the eye of the needle to to become bigger people, to become huge people, really moral leaders in the world. And and what you said just now was really powerful because their experiences then shaped the decisions they made for their family. It it, it shaped the decision of sending your brother and sister off to Cleveland to That's the schools right. that they went to, which then ultimately shaped them in choosing um, alternate paths of, of whether it was religion or whether it was feminist activism, but it it, it then right. shaped them. And that is partially how this trauma moves through families because all of a sudden it is, it is almost a control, an unconscious control that is existing, exactly. but it's the control of the trauma that is actually taking place. Exactly. It's not the control of love. Love doesn't, love wants freedom, but when we have all of this, as it were, like a psychic undertow within us, this need to uh, to get on top of that existential threat, it, it does come out in very strange ways. In my parents' ways, uh, were extremely dogmatic and doctrinaire. And my first brother and first sister were born, you know, at the during the war. Uh, and my parents were, I think. My mother was a refugee. My father came home from war, having seen what he saw. And I think that they were uh, not only uh, intractable, they were inflexible, but they I don't think that they gave the kind of loving embrace. They were just too preoccupied. They were just too overcome with what they had just gone through. And so my first brother and sister really bore the brunt of that and and really had to find their way to spread their wings and did so in very radical ways. My sister became a, uh, one of the founding founders of the radical feminist movement in the U.S., Shalameth Firestone, and my brother became a, uh, you know, left Orthodox Judaism and into, went into Zen Buddhism. And, uh, this was, both of these were just too much for my parents. And, uh, ended up, you know, just cutting them off. They just couldn't, couldn't tolerate this kind of uh, change of lifestyle for them. So, yes, w- there's all kinds of ways that uh, trauma acts when we are, uh, when, when, when it's unprocessed and unresolved, and it comes out in our families very strongly, and it comes out in our communities. In reading your book, I came across kind of a paradoxical question for myself, and and it's a question that I've had in the past, and one is, if we don't share the trauma, if it is silenced, it does somehow energetically come through, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next segment, but it does somehow come through to our children and people around us. But yet I've also seen when people continuously share histories or share uh, what has taken place, that in itself can create um, another type of imprint or even a chip on the shoulder or another level of trauma. Right. What is That's the right. distinction between the two and how do we navigate between that? It's such a, a brilliant question, Simran. Uh, we can re-traumatize ourselves and re-traumatize our children with images and with stories if they come with uh, with the wrong message, if they come with a message of fear. So, for instance, after 9-11, I think unconsciously, unwittingly, the media kept playing those images again and again and again of the Twin Towers being crashed into and, and falling. And uh, I think that that, that was a, an example of how we can re-traumatize people and then people suffer what we call vicarious trauma or secondary trauma where something is imprinted with fear and horror of a terror is just uh, uh, ingrained 
and that is to no good effect at all. However, there is a way, and one of the one of the key um, hallmarks that we are we're studying now in trauma healing is that we do need to tell the story. We do need to tell the story to a witness who is witnessing us with calm and loving eyes, who is witnessing with full attention, with a good ear. And that is a kind of uh, telling of the story that will be, give us the power to harvest meaning out of it. And so it really depends how we're telling the story and to whom. And it really is important that we have people to witness us and to um, take our story and absorb it and help us find meaning in it. It isn't only families who suffer in the aftermath of war, but entire communities. Growing up in the shadow of massive trauma is something like walking onto the site of a fatal train wreck just after it had been cleared of debris. The crush of life still screeches, shockwaves still reverberate, and there's a smell of things not being right, even when on the surface, perfume and smiles dominate. This is from Tirsa Firestone's book, Wounds into Wisdom. Our past does not simply disappear. The lasting effects of individual trauma are widely recognized. But what about the consequences of extreme trauma on an entire ethnic group? Importantly, this book focuses on the impact of collective trauma in the world today as populations are dislocated by war, poverty, government, policy, and climate change, and provides a template for people everywhere to emerge from tragedy and reshape their destinies. You can find out more about Wounds into Wisdom, along with some ancestral healing workshops and retreats that will be taking place in 2020 at Tirsa's website, tirsafirestone.com, T-I-R-Z-A-H, Firestone.com. We'll be right back after these messages. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Do you want more, more joy, more abundance, more power and presence? How would it feel to have more loving relationships, more empowered community, greater fulfillment and life purpose? The 1111 Mastermind Community inspires, empowers, guides and supports transformation. Shift your mind, expand your heart, deepen insights, let go and chart a new course, dream a new dream. The 1111 Mastermind Community is an online portal for personal transformation and soulful expansion. Go to courses.1111mag.com. That's courses.1111mag.com. Change begins with you. Let it be simple, convenient, and transformative. The time is now. Step through the 1111 gateway. Courses.1111mag.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at IamSimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. 
I want to make sure that you know that the latest issue of 1111 Magazine is up. I always feature six individuals that have shared something in the world, and it is a powerful issue. So definitely dive into it to begin your 2020 year and this next decade. It will prove to provide some insight, some powerful motivation, as well as a nice foundation to begin this year. It is always free digitally, and if you'd like the audio version, there is an audio version on the site that you can also access as well. Survivors of trauma often find themselves in a double bind. On the one hand, there is an inner compulsion to tell the trauma story and be heard, while on the other, there is a sense that words can never encompass an experience that feels beyond the limits of human ability to grasp. And so the imperative to speak is often overcome by the impossibility of telling, and silence prevails. But with silence comes alienation, and this is one of the reasons that survivors often feel as if they're living in an alternate reality. This is from the book, Wounds into Wisdom, Healing Intergenerational Jewish Trauma by Rabbi Tears of Firestone. Uh, you can find out more at her website, tearsoffirestone.com, and also check out some of the uh, healing retreats that she has coming up that are in relation to this work. As we ended the last segment, Tirsa, we were talking about how children can pick up on things very easily and that you learned that the children's psychic borders are highly permeable. Um, from our earliest moments, we are able to distinguish ourselves as separate entities and we form the impressions that adults seem to have as well. And you state Dr. Vamek Vulcan's work where he says that the transmission of trauma from one generation to the next is our, as image deposits, and that traumatized adults can unconsciously deposit their internalized images into the developing self of the child, which then becomes a reservoir for the adult's trauma images, and then shape the child's life. So as we are looking at trauma from this perspective of how we are passing it on, um, and even through the nervous system, as you did, uh, did discover in the case of Ilana, um, whose family also escaped from Hungary. How do we then move through that? You said it's a very personal issue as well as of a collective issue. So let's first look at it from the personal side of what's important as an individual to move through the healing of trauma that we've either experienced individually or that has been passed on to us. Yes, it's really a fascinating a fascinating phenomenon how we can transfer our fears, our anxieties, our images into uh, those who come after us, even even though we may want to spare them, even though we want their their joy and their happiness and their uh, their well being, when we have not fully resolved our our own pain, we can literally transmit uh, images, as Dr. Vulcan says, and. Uh, and whole, actually whole scenarios. Let me tell you a story if we have just a moment. There's a young woman where I live who I interviewed recently who she's in her 30s now, but her very first memory in life was a dream. And she would, it was a very upsetting dream and she would have it recurringly. And finally, she had the words to tell her mother uh, what the dream was about because every time she would have it she would wake up and cry and her mother would rush in so finally she told her mother this story that she was seeing uh, every time and it was uh, a, a flying around a an old town made of wood and cobblestones and she would always zero in on the train station and there she would see the same scene of a man jumping from the platform onto the railroad tracks and chasing very emotionally chasing after a train that was just taking off and running and running and calling after the train stop stop and he could never catch up with the train and so she would wake up with this terrible feeling in her heart and um so finally she told her mother the story in the middle of the night when she woke up and the mother started crying herself. And the mother said, how could you know that? How could you know that story? That's the story of my father. That's exactly what happened, but you, didn't, you haven't even met your, my father, your grandfather. This was his first family. He had come home. He was a young man, had come home from bartering for food on the black market during World War II and found his door open and his family gone. The Gentile neighbors said, oh, the, the SS guards just took them off 
all the Jews off to the train station. Hurry, maybe you can catch up. He runs to the train station, gets to the platform, jumps in, runs after the train, and, of course, never did find his family again. Now, that image, that whole little movie that she saw, how could she possibly have inherited that nightmare? And yet she did. Now, science hasn't caught up with that, although we do have a lot of clinical data about this right now, about how uh, stresses and environmental uh, environmental extreme life experiences uh, do get are heritable. They are inherited. But uh, this this young woman, who who was almost imprinted with this trauma of her grandfather, we don't understand how that is. But she took herself into a a uh, a support group with other young people who are all third generation of the Holocaust survivors. She's a very bright woman. And, and there they discussed and unpacked and gleaned out what was the meaning of these, what, how would these uh, nightmarish kind of legacies inform their own lives now in the, in the 21st century? How, what could they take that was good from that? What kind of fuel, what kind of momentum, what kind of lessons, what kind of... Um, courage and resilience do they want to harvest from the from the nightmares of their grandparents and interestingly uh and she's a very well-adjusted and successful young woman and i think she's done that so well very interestingly when i she saw the shock on my face when i when she told me this story about her inherited nightmare she said oh this is nothing and the people in my in my 3g group i have these all of us have these experiences and these uh, dreams that don't belong to us. So um, she was really a teacher for me, and it really helped me understand that we do need to ask when we have anxieties or fears or a sense of unsafety in the world, we need to ask, is this mine or is this bigger than me? Did this start with me? Is this the product of something that I've lived out, or is this something from my family that I need to I need to work with and process and and call out the deeper meaning from. Let's let's talk a little bit about meaning because so often when when an individual is going through something that is traumatic or um, has a, a family history of something that has been traumatic, I think our default is we want to give meaning to it. We want to consider ourselves somewhat significant in the grand scheme of things, in the big picture of things. We want there to be a level of specialness almost at times um, mm-hmm. to kind of make an understanding of, of what has taken place. Is that something, I know from the hero's journey perspective, that's a positive. It actually gives us the impetus to continue going and to leap beyond just like this young woman did. But can that specialness and that need to be significant also be another type of veil to keep us from really feeling what needs to be felt? <laughs> what, what a subtle question. It's really true that we can turn our victimhood, so to speak, into a kind of badge. And uh, it turns into an identity. And that is... That's dangerous, I think, psychologically, because what it does is it uh, precludes others. It insulates ourselves, and it, uh, it doesn't help us break through to the other side, which is to see that, that, it is, uh, that, that so many people in humanity that uh, have these experiences, that so many are suffering. It doesn't help us when we're too special, uh, when we have our identity bolstered like that. It it uh, keeps us, in a sense, locked up. It doesn't help us engender compassion for others. And uh, ultimately, I think the, the, the highest form of healing, as uh, many traumatologists and philosophers have said uh, for centuries now, uh, the highest form of healing has to do when we when our compassion for the plight of others who are suffering is is increased and we're able to say, I know what that feels like, 
and I want to help you, and I want to prevent this from happening again, and I want to reach out. So it, it breaks us open. It breaks us, breaks our heart open. It's not just a broken heart. It's a broken open heart. And we uh, feel a need to reach out to others, not to insulate ourselves. Mm. There was uh, something that I also noticed within the book, and it was that you steered away from your Jewish heritage in terms of faith and then came back around. And your brother and sister, particularly your brother, did the same in going more towards the Buddhist tradition. Uh, Do you think that sometimes we project our trauma onto religion, uh, which is what steers so many people away? Because oftentimes in the spiritual journey, people do leave their religions because they think it is the religion that is part of the the trauma-inducing or separation-inducing place. But is that just a place of projection and that actually coming back to our faith and relearning it and understanding it, whatever culture we're from, can actually be the healing? Well, it can be, but every person has their own journey and, uh, and that is their hero's journey. Whether they come back fully around like I did or whether they, they leave and find other uh, other forms of meaning. Uh, every person has their own way, but uh, I do feel that um, you know my brother and my sister's path, and that ended with early, you know, a, a shortened life, uh, was their way of trying to find freedom. And there is just an irony, Simran, about religion, isn't there? Uh, it really, I think every religion and every spiritual and sacred tradition on earth uh, is embedded with the the, the journey. Uh, it, they give us the journey toward uh, toward love, toward a, toward that broken open heart, and toward universal compassion. And yet, our religions so often fence us in, and so often make us feel special or uh, you know tribal. And that's really one of the great dilemmas and the great challenges of our day, I think, is the, uh, this, this need to, to feel safe within our own. Uh, now, everybody needs an identity. I think that that is just psychologically true. And every person needs a sense of belonging. Uh, and once you are secure in that belonging, you are able to feel the, the universality and the truth and the universal path that, that all men and women walk. Uh, but so often our spiritual traditions fence us in and keep us separate. And then there are these tragedies that happen uh, when we kill in the name of our identity or we, uh, we lock ourselves in in the name of our tribe. Mm. And I think that, that that kind of turns it back to what you initially stated at the beginning of this segment Um, and that you write as the two key elements uh, that do support being the bridge to come out of trauma, and that is a safe witness and the ripeness of time. Talk a little bit about those two things. Mm, Yes, when we're doing our, our trauma healing, it's so important to have a witness, and it's so important to allow a kind of organicity and organic flow to happen. Sometimes we're really not ready to talk, and that's okay. And then one day we need someone, or one day we find someone who really has the ears and the eyes and the heart to to hear us out and to uh, not lay their agenda on us, but to really listen with an openness. Um, uh, I have a one beautiful tale in the in the book is about a man who I call Avi. He's still alive uh, in Israel today. He lives in a wheelchair. He's a very elderly man, and uh, he was uh, began as a little boy, as a four year old in the Krakow ghetto. His parents heard that there was an operation to round up all the children and uh, take them, tr- you know, transport them to their death the next day and. They said, no way. They took their little boy and they wrapped him up in a shawl and they pushed him out of the ghetto in the middle of the night. And this little boy had only two things. He was given, along with that shawl, to keep him warm. 
uh, he was given uh, the an address. The address it turned out to be a brothel, where some kind women took him in for a few days before he was then out on the street again. And the most importantly, the mom gave him a little picture, a little student ID picture of herself, and with her big open eyes. She was a young woman, and she she said, "Avi, when you." Get afraid being on your own. Just take out my picture and look me in the eye and I will look at you and I will watch you. I am going to be watching you and I'm going to be hearing your prayers and I want you simply to look at my picture and talk to me and tell me what you feel and I will always be there and I will always be listening to you and I promise that after the war I will come back and get you and please don't ever, don't ever lose faith in me. Just take out my picture and talk. And that's exactly what he did. And this little boy went through hell. um, For three years, he was on the street, and he was living in the woods like a little animal and living in homes and out of homes. And uh, and he would always take out his mom's picture and and pray to her. And uh, that, I think, the witness, it wasn't even a live witness. It was the witness of this picture, which probably was all crumpled up and by, you know, the, in the end of three years of, of talking and crying over her, uh, that little picture saved his life. I think that the power of witness. And probably he had a very secure attachment, as we say as psychologists. He was a little boy who had a very, uh, that inner security those first four years of his life before he went out on his own, but he lived for three years on his own, and then he was reunited with his parents, and uh, unfortunately, when he when he saw them, he didn't recognize them. They were so, they were so disheveled and emaciated, but he went on to be a war hero, this, this young man, and uh, he emigrated to Palestine and was, uh, became a decorated war hero, although he always had in him uh, a nightmare. Here we have the dreams again, the return of the repressed. And mm-hmm. uh, he was on a conveyor belt that he couldn't get off. And he would be riding on that conveyor belt, and at the end of the conveyor belt was a Nazi who who would crush him. And so every night when he had that dream, he would wake up in a cold sweat. And he lived with a secret. He never told anything about his background to his even his wife of 35 years or his children, they knew nothing. Finally, uh, uh, Dr. Dori Laub, a famous dramatologist in Israel, a Romanian Holocaust survivor himself, found him and said, I hear that you may have a story. Would you like to tell your story to the Fortunoff Yale archives? Tell and let the world witness you. And he said, no, no, I will never tell my story. And his wife finally prevailed upon him, and finally he agreed, and he told his story, and he told it to the world. Thousands and thousands of people were listening to his story. That was was really the true witness uh, that he needed, because that night he had that dream again. And for the first time in all those decades, he was able to jump off the conveyor belt. He had the freedom, because something inside of him had healed just by virtue of being heard, of being witnessed, uh, having his trauma heard. And it really teaches us that we need one another. We cannot heal deeply from our wounds without the love and the, the presence of one another. Mm. Something deep in the psyche shifts when we know we are not alone. Without human That's eyes exactly and ears right. to share in our reality, our suffering can become meaningless and unbearable. This is one reason that many survivors of the Holocaust lost all hope in life despite their physical survival. For in fact, the world outside had turned a blind eye to their plight, apathetic to their suffering. This is from the book Wounds into Wisdom, Healing Intergenerational Jewish Trauma by Dr. Rabbi Tirsa Firestone. You can find out more at her website, tirsafirestone.com, and definitely check out some of the ancestral healing retreats that she has coming up this year. We'll be right back after these messages. Do you want more? more joy, more abundance, more power and presence? How would it feel to have more loving relationships? 
more empowered community, greater fulfillment, and life purpose? The 1111 Mastermind Community inspires, empowers, guides, and supports transformation. Shift your mind, expand your heart, deepen insights, let go and chart a new course, dream a new dream. The 1111 Mastermind Community is an online portal for personal transformation and soulful expansion. Go to courses.1111mag.com. That's courses.1111mag.com. Change begins with you. Let it be simple, convenient, and transformative. The time is now. Step through the 1111 gateway. Courses.1111mag.com. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at IamSimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. Do you think it helps us that you suffer? Live the life we could not live. These were words that were spoken in a dream to Tears of Firestone. And they were words that had her sit up in bed and weep and penetrate her to the place that touched the core of her malaise and the impetus for doing the work that she was here to do. There is an inner compulsion to know. One has to know one's buried truth in order to be able to live one's life, writes the late professor Dory Lobb, himself a survivor. Many of us struggle to bring to consciousness the hidden legacies that our families bequeath to us. For some, it takes years to piece together the unspoken wounds that have shaped our lives. The residue of our ancestors' unresolved injury does not simply disappear. In fact, it outweighs it weighs most heavily on the introspective, sensitive members of the next generations. This is from Wounds into Wisdom, Rabbi Tirsa Firestone's book on healing intergenerational Jewish trauma. You can find out more at tirsafirestone.com. Tirsa, welcome back. Um, we're in the last segment, and I do want to at least touch upon some of the seven distinct themes that emerged from your interviews. I know we won't get into all of them, but I think that's an important part of this book that as you go through, you do share some beautiful, very heartfelt and very heartbreaking stories uh, of individuals that have moved through trauma. And I want to emphasize moved through uh, because through their stories, um, there was a lot of growth and the ability to see that hero's journey. You also, through the book, allowed us to see both the personal and the collective effects of repressed trauma and unspoken trauma. And through this book, you have also allowed these seven principles to be shared that allow us to realize that we can uh, move beyond our trauma. And and that's a really powerful piece. So I want to emphasize again that although this book speaks a lot to the the Jewish heritage and the intergenerational Jewish trauma, it really does apply to any and all peoples because we have all, all cultures have suffered their own forms of trauma, their own wars, their own oppressions, their own slaveries. We've all had something like this in our background. So the principles are actually across the board, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. 
yes. Although my research subjects were, were Jews around the world, both Ashkenazic and uh, Middle Eastern and Russian, uh, from all parts of the world, it uh, really is a universal plight that we're, we're all struggling with, how to free ourselves from past, uh, from past tragedies, from past traumas, from, uh, the, from historical uh, oppression and discrimination. Every ethnicity on the face of the earth really has uh, has its own history that that, that we are working with, and uh, I would say that uh, especially now, with so many groups being dislocated by war and climactic changes and uh, and all kinds of poverty, we we are there are fresh wounds being incurred. So this work really applies to all the refugees, to the religious groups and indigenous tribes, and uh, who are suffering from the uh, the current events. And um, so in the book, <clears throat> I glean out from all of these wonderful people, these fabulous big souled people. Uh, what did, what did they all say? What were the common denominators of their healing journey? And I came out with seven, there were seven things that they all agreed on. And uh, these seven principles, I call them, or themes, are things that are completely universal, like, they, like you say, they're across the board. And we can use them, and I've used them myself, even since the, <laughs> since the book came out, uh, we can use them on an individual level, on a family level, on an ethnic level. And uh, they're basically, uh, I'll, I'll just enumerate some of them, facing, facing the loss, facing the truth of what's happened, facing the, rea- the new reality of, of whatever it is. If you've lost a child or you've uh, lost a body part or you've gone through a, uh, a serious ex- or extreme life event, um, whether in your family or personally or to your people, facing the loss and uh, not trying to duck out of the way or not trying to, as we've said, push it under or get over it too fast. There is an organicity. There is a ripeness of time, as we were saying earlier. And so just being kind to oneself and facing into the new the new reality of what's happened to us. And then there comes a moment where, where we start to take the pain and harness it. There's one uh, narrator in my book named Rami, who is uh, a beautiful man who lost his daughter through a suicide bombing in Jerusalem some years ago. And she was a teenager just shopping with her girlfriends and a bomb went off. And Rami tells the story of how he became uh, just a... Just crazy with the grief and angry and vengeful and hateful and he just was full of poison because he had lost his his little girl and something happens i won't give that away you can look look at that in the book some some key in him turns to allow him to say no i need to take that pain and harness it he says pain of this nature is like nuclear energy we can use it to destroy the world. We can use it to bring darkness and grief. Or, like nuclear energy, we can use it to harness it for warmth and light and fuel. And uh, when that subtle moment of choice comes and we are able to to uh, say, I'm ready to take back my life, I'm going to harness the power of my pain, then things start to really happen in one's life another another let me interrupt you right let me interrupt you right there too so i have two things i wanted to to go back to in regard to that um particularly in regard to facing the loss we live in a society where people say get over it move on get Mm -hmm. past it get yourself back up be positive you know there's a there's a plan god has a plan and this was part of your plan there are all these things that get that try to force people to move too quickly. And I know that in moving through my own situation, I got clear guidance that it was important to sit in it, to feel it fully, Mm -hmm. to allow it to be completely absorbed 
within me for it to to really be healed and to heal not just for myself but for my future generations. Talk a little That's bit right. um, to that particular piece and also speak to the people that say, I don't have any trauma. My family doesn't have any trauma. None of this has anything to do with me, not even what's going on in the world. Yeah. I know. And we, we only have well, a couple of minutes left, unfortunately. So whatever you can get out in that. Yes, I think you're so. saying it. Uh, Simran, I think you're saying it so beautifully. You know, we have to just sit in it. Uh, there, the, the image is, uh, you know, having a cauldron and just letting it cook inside of us and not trying to escape it. It is the hardest thing in the world to do that, as I think you sound like you know. And anyone who has been through this will be able to sit kindly and compassionately with someone else. But we live in a culture, as you say, that is all about instant relief. Fast, fast, fast relief. We're all looking for taking a pill and getting over the pain, and there is no getting over. We can, we can, I can't get over it. We have to go through it. We can't get around it. We have to go through it, and and that does take some time. And we have to be so compassionate with ourselves. We are going to go slower. We are going to be different. We are going to be changed. We aren't going to be as uh, bright and cheerful the way everyone wants us to be. But we do need to have the the good faith in ourselves that if we uh, if we embark on that journey, we are going to come through the other side. And uh, and there is a organic wholeness and health in each inside of each one of us that will tell us what our timing is so we need to not rush it and it is uh it's a great act of faith it really is the biggest act of faith to go through one's own pain and um and in the Mm. rightness of time find our way through Mm, beautiful unfortunately we are out of time but that just lets me have the opportunity to let my listeners know they need to pick up this book to find out the rest of the principles to really dive into their wounds and garner their wisdom to heal their own intergenerational trauma. You can find out more uh, at the website of tearsoffirezone.com. Again, definitely pick up your book, Wounds to Wisdom. Check out her ancestral healing workshops. And I'm going to leave you with this final piece from Principle 7. What will we do with our legacies, whether we are Jews or members of another tribe that has suffered the trauma of genocide or persecution simply for being who we are? We must ask this question. Will we sink into the inevitability of our inherited nightmares, as Israeli researcher Nathan Kellerman warns, or will we choose to find our own unique path to transform our inheritance and give new meaning to our people's tragedies? The science of epigenetics now demonstrates what many of us have suspected, that we carry a kind of biological memory of historical events that precede us, but we receive more than our forebears' painful legacies. We also receive the capacity to reshape the trajectory of our own lives. We can choose to work with our givens to override the negative effects of our painful legacies and maximize our strengths. We can transform the imprint of our ancestors' trauma. Definitely check out Rabbi Tirsa Firestone. Join me next week when my guest is Carrie Hummingbird. We will dive into another beautiful show. Until then, in love, of love, with love, and as love, I am Simran. Be well. Thank you for opening your mind to a new reality, your heart to greater compassion, and your experience of aliveness with 1111 Talk Radio. Join host Simron next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern Time to step through the gateway of conscious living here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember, you are not on the journey. You are the journey.